My guest tonight is a significant fellow in the publishing industry, Adam Bellow, who was for a number of years the uh, director of Free Press, is these days editor-at-large for Doubleday Books, and about two years ago, he published, had published for him, uh, published, in fact, by uh, Random House, I guess, a book which got a lot of attention and is a lot of fun and is also a serious social treatise, I would say. It is titled, In Praise of Nepotism, A History of Family Enterprise from King David to George W. Bush. So, uh, Richard Daly uh, I was not uh, establishing a new tradition when he said it is a fashion, uh, rather it is a father's duty to help his sons. Well, far from it. Uh, but he knew exactly what he was what he was doing. He was he was uh, speaking over the heads of the smirking uh, city hall reporter to the uh, to his constituents mm -hmm. in the bungalow belt. Uh, they where, all help their sons with their dad. Where, yes, where where ethnic solidarity mm -hmm. uh, was the was the great tradition, and it's. Um, uh, this uh, uh, leads to one of the, my first uh, discoveries about nepotism, which is that uh, people have, uh, you know, many misconceptions about it. One of them is that it's uh, something that's only practiced by the rich uh, as a way of keeping their their incompetent sons and nephews uh, off the street. But um, anyone who comes from a from a big American city like Chicago with a with a strong ethnic tradition uh, knows very well that uh, that nepotism is the principle by which ethnic communities uh, help themselves and their, and their children uh, over generations to, uh, to succeed. In a confessional mode, I will, reading your book, arouse my thoughts about this. I will here instantly say, and say for the first time on the air, that I clearly did one or two nepotistic interventions for my own sole son at a crucial point. My son was just out of, was about to graduate from college, from Brandeis University, wasn't quite sure what he should do in this next year or two. We thought he would like to uh, do something in Congress, if possible. And he called me and said, do you know any Congress people? I said, yeah, I know a few, of course. And he said, well, do you think I could find a job on somebody's staff? And I chatted with him for just a bit, hung up the phone, and called a congressman that I knew. <laughs> in fact, I called a congresswoman that I knew. And she didn't have any room on her staff, but she said, call congressman so-and-so, who was another congressman that I knew, and I called him the next day, and uh, he, he said, I'm sure we could find room for him if he's as bright as his father. I, of course, added instantly, he's brighter, <laughs> and he probably is. Apples uh, don't just fall from the tree, they roll uphill. And my son was in that congressional office about two weeks later, mm -hmm. starting uh, a career. It only lasted for the summer, in fact. And then he decided there was something else he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But it was a valuable experience for him. That's pure nepotism, isn't it? Well, of course. It's, 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 not only is it nepotism, it's the way things are done. It's the way things work. I shouldn't feel any guilt or embarrassment about that. You should be proud. And I'm sure you are proud. And you've, in, I can see from the smile on your face how, how, how happy you are to have been able to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, and, uh, and, and, of course, this is the way things, things really are done in our society. We, we, of course, we... We uh, pride ourselves on our commitment to, to merit and equal opportunity. Yeah, but there's an instant response, an interest, uh, instant criticism. Somebody listening even now can say, well, that's great for Rosenberg, but I don't know any congressman. I don't have a radio program where congresspeople and others come on, and, the, and so you get to know people of some importance and power. And my son uh, was just as bright 
but uh, he had to go to work uh, for some real estate company, which he didn't really like. He didn't get that summer job in Congress. Well, I don't know. I mean, what about your father, uh, Milt? Did he, uh, was he able to help you? With money, uh -huh. a little bit. Uh -huh. Not much. My father was an immigrant and a painting contractor, and towards the end of his life, a building contractor. But mm -hmm. no, he didn't have connections in the university or political world. Well, you see, that's that's, that's the way things are. You know, people uh, uh, people have to make do with the, the best they can with what they with what they what they have with what they're they're given at birth. It's of course it's true that some people have have more than others. And I understand that, that this is a, a, a source of resentment uh, for many people, but you know what would you have what would you have mm -hmm. us do? Uh, are we gonna Are you gonna stop helping your children? Are you gonna say no to your child if they if they come to you asking for help? But there are some sectors of society. Maybe there have been whole social orders at some point in history where the tradition is against anything of the sort that we would call nepotism, or where. Uh, fathers are not supposed to advance their sons, where husbands are not supposed to benefit their wives. There are still, though I think they're more honored in the breach than the observance, anti-nepotism rules in the universities. Well, um, uh, we as a society have, 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 are unique in our attempt over several hundred years to deal with the problem of nepotism or really to balance uh, a healthy uh, respect for the family and the family tradition with an equally important commitment to to the principles of, of merit and equal opportunity. And um, uh, the rules against nepotism are actually very recent. There, there really weren't any rules, uh, even in the federal government, uh, until after World War II. In fact, the first real anti-nepotism rule in the government was, was passed in the, in the late 60s, uh, supposedly as a response to uh, Bobby Kennedy's appointment as attorney mm -hmm. general. Which was rather an outrageous act on the part of uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Well, he was elected you know, and he appoints his brother attorney general. Yes, and it was very controversial. He took he took a lot of heat for it, uh, although he and he runs his other brother for the senatorial position from Massachusetts, and that brother is still with us. That's correct, and uh, that's uh, uh, I, I will uh, I will withhold any comment on the uh, on that. But I think I, I think uh, it's fair to say that the the uh, the Kennedy family. Um, uh, uh, represent the the paradox of nepotism in our society. They uh, they clearly were uh, uh, driven, uh, and their way was prepared. In fact, paid for, bought and paid for in some cases mm -hmm. by their by their overbearing and domineering father. In uh, fact, the election might have been bought partly and paid for by the father. Uh, the case of West Virginia yes. is still a matter of scholarly debate mm -hmm. whether that was a uh, a crooked election and whether the father paid for votes in well, West Virginia. It seems to be whether that was whether the, uh, was, was it was the primary in West Virginia. Yes, the West Virginia primary. Mm -hmm. Well, th there certainly were accusations of foul play uh, in uh, in the West Virginia primary and also in the Cook County uh, uh, election returns. We come back to Bayer Daly, who on election night tells Kennedy supposedly, with a little help from our friends, mm -hmm. I think we'll take Illinois. Well, politics, as as Daly understood and as the Kennedys understood, is about friendship and about about favors. Um, that's how that's how things get done, and that's what the that's the soul of a political party. That's something that Abraham Lincoln understood and Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, all the great uh, politicians in this in this country's history have been masters of political patronage and nepotism. If you go back to politics in the first democracy, say if you go back to Athens mm -hmm. or to the Roman Republic, do you find clear evidence of nepotism? Well, not only that, they were in fact uh, they were family businesses. 
the, uh, the the Athenian Republic and the Roman Republic were were very very much alike. And, you know, ancient politics was all about uh, family enterprise, uh, and the the essence of a political party in in Athens or Rome was a network of uh, of patronage and family influence. It was connected by you were connected by marriage with. Uh, with other influential families, and you uh, you voted together in the assembly, and you pulled strings behind the scenes uh, to advance your interests and those of your friends, and really, you know, it never really changed. It's just that we don't uh, like to talk about it anymore. Well, the basic question is, and I raised the question just as we stopped for some commercials, and looking forward to your response in three minutes, that basic question is, is it demonstrable that this is good for the larger society? or? To the contrary, is it demonstrable that this is injurious to the maintenance of the common wheel? We return to Adam Bellow, drawing from his new book. I keep saying new. His book of two years ago, just newly issued in paperback, In Praise of Nepotism. And directly back to Adam Bellow. We could give a hundred instances of serious nepotism in politics, in business, in even in the arts. Indeed, this is the moment when we should add par or note parenthetically or as a sidebar that um, some people will recognize that yours is a familiar name, and you are yourself the son of a very famous and significant writer. That's right. I believe in fact, his name was Saul Bellow. That's right. That's right. And the, uh, the, the, the fact is that I'm an example of the phenomenon that I'm writing about. I started this book uh, five years ago um, because I thought uh, it was, uh, I, I, I noticed that it was a subject that no one had ever studied before. And that's a remarkable thing in, its, in itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, why not? Everything else has been written about. Uh, but I understood that this was a subject that was surrounded by a lot of prejudice, and misunderstanding, and, and hypocrisy, because it's something that everybody condemns, and yet it goes on very, very widely, and there must be a reason for that. Um, so I started to, to look into it, and I discovered, lo and behold, that I was not alone. There are dozens and dozens of children of, of writers, for example, uh, some of them are friends of mine, like the Cheever children, um, or the McPhee children, some of whom I went to school with. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I mean, I have an appendix in my book, it's about 30 pages, where I just list people in every category, not just in, in the writing trade, but in, um, uh, of course, politics, Hollywood, m the music business, professional sports, stock car racing, golf course architecture. Uh, funer uh, funeral homes, uh, fireworks manufacturing. There is no business, there is no enterprise of any kind that does not have family tradition. And it's an increasing phenomenon. It's something that in, our, in this generation is definitely on the increase, and I think that I felt that that needed to be explained. Where, if at all, have you, um, have you been favored by virtue of being your father's son? Well, uh, nowhere, <laughs> to be honest. Um, uh, uh, you didn't get your job because you were... Son of Saul. No, in fact, uh, I got the, the I got uh, uh, treated very strangely by uh, people in New York because, uh, as as you may as you probably know, uh, my father spent some years in New York, mm -hmm. and uh, turns out that he stepped on a lot of people's toes. Uh, he was uh, he was a little haughty, and um, cutting a swath, you know, through through New he York. He even did that here in Chicago. He may have done a little of that yeah. and uh, left some bruised egos uh, behind. Uh, so when I was in my twenties and looking around for, for work, uh, I found that there were people who were prepared to, to, uh, to have me into their offices and uh, look me over out of curiosity, but they, they were not going to, to, uh, to give me a job. I was not, uh, if I had a fantasy that I was going to become the prince of uh, New York no. publishing, that was, that was quickly But you do dashed. rather have the impression 
that you got this book idea accepted because of your father's significance? Well, I, I think that's, uh, as a commercial proposition, the publisher has understood that uh, to have Saul Bellow's son um, uh, writing a book defending nepotism was a, was a, mm -hmm. a, a, a controversial thing. But the, uh, the fact is, as, I, as I, uh, I don't really write about this very much in the book, but the fact is, um, you know, my father, uh, as you know, I, I wish I'd been your son, you know, you would have done, uh, I would have done a lot better than I did with my father because he, he tried to help me get, uh, get jobs. Um, when I got out of college, I wanted to work in journalism, uh, and he said, "Oh, okay." And he picked up the phone, but uh, and he called a few people, but he didn't know anybody um, mm. of any consequence, and uh, that didn't go anywhere. So I found that he was not very, not very helpful, even though he wanted to, because of what father, you know, doesn't want to help his his kid. As Mayor Daly said, that's right. It's, it's a father's duty. It's unnatural. To what what kind sons. of what would you think of a of a father who who uh, who didn't help his kid? Now back to the question I was pressing a moment ago. Can it be demonstrated that nepotism works? For the good of others than those who are in the advantaged family. Well, it can, it can indeed, and um, yeah, you can approach that question from any from any number of perspectives. But let's just let's just confine ourselves to American history. Um, <clears throat> we have a myth in this country that um, that we're all uh, uh, everybody came over here um, alone uh, on a uh, in steerage uh, on a, on a ship uh, and with two with two pennies in our pockets. Uh, and somehow uh, we all became uh, uh, dry goods uh, uh, magnates uh, with no help of any kind. And uh, so that we have a, a very self-flattering image in this country um, that, uh, that we're all self-made men and women. But I've never really been able to, um, uh, to, to, uh, to think that way because I'm the, I'm the, uh, the descendant of immigrants and I know the fam my family's history very well. Uh, and it's a, it's an aspect of the of the the Jewish immigrant story. Your grandparents, Saul's parents, mm -hmm. were immigrants from Eastern Europe. Yeah, they came. They they went to Montreal in 1905, um, and uh, where um, my uh, grandmother's uh, sister and her family were living. And this is very typical. Uh, this is the phenomenon called chain migration, where family mm -hmm. members some someone goes goes over ahead of time. Uh, they establish themselves, and then they bring over their relatives, and then they find them jobs and places to live. That's the way half of Mexico is moving to America right well, now. Well, that's 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 right, and that's this is our, uh, in fact, our immigration policy is based on what's called family reunification, mm -hmm. where if you if you have a family member in the United States, you're allowed to, every member of your family is allowed to come here and become and become citizens. Uh, now, this is how this uh, the country was actually settled and populated. Uh, what happened was that people, you know, came first in the, in the you know. 1600s, um, in groups of families, a whole towns really from from England, came over here and settled, settled in uh, New England, uh, and when they ran out of land, their uh, their children and grandchildren uh, went off and started new farms and new communities, uh, and uh, all across the Midwest in this country, uh, all the towns uh, that are that have you know uh, they have uh, been established by. These families still bear their names. Their streets in those communities um, uh, bear the names of the families and the, and the extended families that lived there. And for many, many uh, generations in this country, uh, people lived very closely in their extended family groups. It's only really since uh, the, this after the Second World War that that the the American family shrank to its to its present uh, small size, and people began moving away from home and going on going off in their own direction. Uh, but I think that what I what I have tried to do is to write a book um, that looks at 
the uh, the history, um, not just of the United States, but of but of the, the Western civilization itself, um, from this angle, uh, the, the which has never been done before. No one had ever really looked at the role of families in the uh, in the development of capitalism, uh, in the um, uh, the pioneering of uh, the American West. And one thing that I that I discovered was very amusing, is that. Um, you know, again, the, the American West is considered to be the, the great setting for for uh, uh, individuals. People people are always pictured you mm -hmm. know, heading out to the territories on their own, reinventing themselves. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, there were families and groups of families that that settled all these these uh, territories, and uh, you can see this very clearly in the history of crime and and punishment. I mean, all the criminal all the criminal gangs of the American West were were based on families, they were groups of brothers like the Daltons and the James mm -hmm. uh, brothers, uh, as were the lawmen like the Earps. Uh, you had you know, families of, of, uh, of uh, robbers and families of cops, and this is how it worked. And of course it made perfect sense for, uh, for a federal uh, marshal or a territorial marshal to, uh, to hire his, his brothers and cousins, because who else are you gonna trust? Persists even to this day, of course, in many cities, uh, in some of the uh, public service uh, departments in police and fire and so on. The 9-11 tragedy uh, devastated certain families in New York uh, who had many members in the fire department. Sure, whole communities in fact. I mean yeah. these were people who who had lived um, in uh, uh, in sections of New York for generations. Uh, their 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 fathers were cops and firemen. Their their uncles, their brothers, their cousins, uh, going back sometimes three four generations. Uh, and uh, this is something that we tend to forget because we're we we think of ourselves as a highly mobile middle class society. Let's zero in on one particular family that you treat in some detail. Again, we've got to stop for some commercial, but then let's go to the Napoleon family, mm. uh, who. Or make a very interesting story. It doesn't begin with Napoleon Bonaparte either. I learned from your fine book, uh, utterly readable and really quite fascinating, in praise of nepotism. We return to Adam Bellow and look at uh, the Napoleons of Corsica and other places right after we pause for these words. And we return to Adam Bellow. We are drawing from, but cannot do full justice to, his rich new book in praise of nepotism. Rich in that there are wonderful stories, wonderful analyses, as well as some quite serious social theory. I haven't burdened you with uh, relating all of this to sociobiology, but you do it rather effortlessly, or rather painlessly, I should say, at the beginning of the book. Well, that's a great tribute, and I appreciate it. You I do it very well, and, I, and, and, and persuasively as well. You also start with the mafia and with the Corleones, with, with the fictional mafia and the real mafia. And that's in itself interesting. But let's go on to another kind of ma political mafia, the Napoleons of Corsica. Well, I started the with Bonaparte. The, I, I started say. with the mafia because the mafia is the the quintessential family business. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's the it's the it's the uh, apotheosis really of, of nepotism, and it shows how how far you can go uh, with a nepotistic system. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, the the uh, all the great families in history uh, have been organized in a very similar way. With uh, based based on uh, on intermarriage with uh, within their branches, uh, people marry their cousins and sometimes in some cases their nieces. Um, mm -hmm. They uh, they uh, they bring talented outsiders into the family, uh, as for example David was brought into the to the uh, to the house of Saul. Uh, King uh, King Saul married his uh, daughter uh, Michal to uh, to David because mm -hmm. he was a very talented young man who was potentially a rival, a challenger, and this was a way of co-opting him.
making sure bring attaching him to the to the uh, to the royal family. The mafia model is uh, uh, is the basic model for for all successful families. One of my favorite examples is the Bach family, who I don't really cover in the book. I didn't. I had to. I had to leave them on the cutting room floor. But uh, it's very interesting to 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 know, for example, that uh, that uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, was the scion of a musical family that, was, that had already been successful for a century yes. before he came along. But here's a sad thing. Uh, there are no direct descendants of Johann Sebastian Bach alive. The last one died some 30 years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that they Despite that they the fact that he had so long. many children. Well, there were, um, uh, yeah, he had many children. Uh, that's another feature of successful dynastic yeah. families. They had many children. Um, and uh, and the, to talk about the Bonapartes, um, I mean, here, uh, in, I deal with the Bonapartes in a section of my book um, uh, that I call the Golden Age of Nepotism, mm -hmm. uh, because it, uh, it spans a period from sort of the Renaissance to the, to the French Revolution, where, where the, uh, uh, the world was open for, uh, for ambitious, uh, dynastic uh, upstarts. Uh, like Napoleon. Families were able to rise. Families were able to rise very quickly. Yeah. The, uh, I start with the Borgia family who rose from uh, in, the f in the 1400s from a provincial uh, Spanish family to, to, uh, to the papacy in, uh, in uh, two generations. They had, uh, they had two popes in two generations. Um, uh, I talk about the, um, the Rothschild family who uh, in more or less the same period uh, rose through the marketplace um, and, the, uh, and the Bonapartes uh, who rose through the military. Now, uh, Napoleon is particularly interesting because he really is the template for, this, for the modern self-made man. Um, uh, in his own time, he was a tremendously influential person, uh, and everybody wanted to, uh, uh, everyone was astonished by, his, by, the, mm. by the rapidness of his rise, uh, and he inspired generations of, of, of uh, young men to imitate him. Um, uh, now the Bonapartes, um, uh, however, did not rise uh, uh, as uh, uh, as generally described. I mean, Napoleon is always described as somebody who was just a just a sheer genius, military genius, uh, who rose through sheer uh, merit and talent and ability uh, to be the the ruler of France and the emperor of Europe. Well, I, I read you know ten or twelve biographies of the family, and uh, you have to do this when you're writing a history of of nepotism. You have to you have to read all these books to pick out. The little details that are that are generally considered not very significant, you know, what what kind of help they had from an uncle or a cousin. Uh, in this case, it was the story of Napoleon's father that I that I unearthed, and that I found very moving and poignant and touching, because Carlo Bonaparte was uh, has always been considered a failure, um, uh, somebody who um, uh, who uh, who died before his uh, his son achieved greatness. Uh, he's always described as being very bad with money. Um, uh, he had uh, too many children and expensive tastes, and uh, uh, and yet this man um, uh, figured out how to manipulate the uh, the social system of uh, of France in his day, pre-revolutionary France, so that he got Napoleon into a military academy. Uh, he got another son into the priesthood. Um, another son uh, became a lawyer, uh, and he basically worked himself to death, going, coming and going in, in 18th-century carriages and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, and boats. But Napoleon, of course, uh, even in the military school where he, I think, trained for some five years before he got his commission, uh, was viewed with 
some amusement and some scorn. He was an outlier. He came from Corsica, which, and his French wasn't very good, mm-hmm. uh, but he mastered uh, all the arts that he had to, both the military arts and even the linguistic arts. And then, of course, he rises through the event of the French Revolution. Yes, and this is a wonderful uh, illustration of, of, uh, of family enterprise. The, 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 the great episode in, in Napoleon's rise is the, the events of uh, the 18th Brumaire, the, uh, uh, the uh, assault on the French assembly, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, at which Napoleon was, uh, the, the, for the, uh, the, the assembly was driven out of, out of Paris, uh, and Napoleon established a, uh, a three-man uh, dictatorship, uh, after, uh, after which he pushed out his, his, uh, his, his fellow rulers and became, became uh, emperor. Just as Augustus did. Just as Augustus, a long, long time. Yeah, and like him. Augustus, he relied on his relatives. And what I what I learned that I I had not known was that it was the efforts of his brothers Lucien and Joseph, mm-hmm. uh, who um, uh, who organized this coup d'état on his behalf. Again, nobody ever pays any attention to this, but these were very you know these were very brilliant and capable people. And it's often said by historians that Napoleon. Uh, fell from power because he because he practiced nepotism because he relied too much on his relatives. Well, he made his brothers kings. He made his sisters mm-hmm. princesses. Uh, he placed all of them rather high up uh, in uh, in majesty, European majesty. It's true, and you know, but the funny thing is that they were actually rather good at their jobs. Uh-huh. Um, they, they were much, jolly the family. They were much more capable than than they're generally given credit for. Uh, of course, he wouldn't allow them to do anything. He was he was so overbearing and domineering that mm-hmm. he, the reason he put his relatives into those positions because he thought he could bully them and push them around. And nobody else would uh, put up with his behavior. The other thing about Napoleon that's really quite interesting, though he, the revolution knocked over an aristocracy, he then went about not so much restoring the old aristocracy as establishing a new aristocracy. He made himself emperor, putting the crown on his own head, grabbing it from the pope and putting it on his own head as a way of saying, asserting his primacy, but then he established whole new orders of nobility, uh, whole new uh, new titles. He made the marshals, of whom there were how many, uh, 12 or 14, mm-hmm. uh, he made them all uh, barons at least, counts ultimately, uh, marquis, uh, one or two of them got that title, and he gave them vast estates. So it was the establishment of a new order. Do you call that nepotism? These were not blood relatives, but they were his men. Well, they were his men, and as I say, this is the mafia model where you... They were his mob, surely. That's right. They yeah. were his lieutenants. They were yeah. his, you know, Frank Nitties. Uh, mm-hmm. These were the guys that rose with him from, from very early in his career. Uh, he, you know, he attached them, uh, he attached these guys to him uh, very early. He married them to his sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he gave them rewards. He promoted them, gave them titles and estates. Uh, he made sure that they were loyal, and they were. They were intensely loyal to him because he had this capacity to inspire loyalty. So why did he fall? Well, he overreached. Um, mm-hmm. In my, my, my chapter on, on Napoleon, which is the one actually I enjoyed writing the most, uh, traces his, his, his nepotism as it evolves from a kind of uh, traditional Corsican uh, family-style nepotism to a uh, through a sort of uh, dynastic uh, uh, nepotism to an imperial nepotism, which is finally uh, uh, overreaches its hubristic. Um, but it isn't really due to his nepotism that he fell. It's it's due to his own uh, insane ambition. His un- unlimited ambition. He was just too successful. And ultimately too dreadfully. Uh, but you know the thing is that incompetent in the face of. R- really, uh, in the face of nature itself, it was the it was the Russian campaign mm-hmm. which defeated him, which killed 
four out of five members of his invasion force. Yes, he he just he clearly overreached, and he had a he was a megalomaniac, and he mm -hmm. he he, uh, he he thought that he could, you know, command the tides uh, and uh, and the seasons, and he was wrong. But it, it's a mistake to think of him as a failure because he established his family in the top ranks of the European aristocracy, and of course his his nephew succeeded him ultimately as emperor, um, Napoleon the third. That's Napoleon the mm third. -hmm. And yeah. uh, and there were Napoleon. Uh, there were Bonaparte um, uh, uh, aristocrats in uh, in several countries, including in the U.S. There's a there was an American branch of the Bonaparte family. They were all very rich. What I don't know about them. What became uh, of them? His um, uh, uh, one of the uh, one branch of the Bonaparte family. What happened was that one of his brothers uh, uh, landed in um, uh, in, a, in a southern city um, uh, in the early 1800s. Uh, ab more or less abducted, married a, uh, a young heiress, uh, got her pregnant, and then Napoleon insisted that that, that he divorce her, which he did. Mm -hmm. uh, but her son was raised with the name Bonaparte, and they were quite wealthy. And in fact, um, uh, uh, there were Bonapartes in the uh, in the cabinet of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, um, they were very distinguished uh, public servants. Uh, and uh, and I think the American branch of the Bonapartes eventually died out. And of course, it was Napoleon himself who decided to sell us uh, the uh, the Western territories called Louisiana. Yes. When it was really about half of what became the continental United States. Well, he uh, he he needed to raise money for his uh, for his uh, campaign for his, for his return to power. Yeah. We are about to pause for the usual reasons we haven't yet talked about, but we certainly must. American political dynasties. We just made mention of them as we started, but they have been there since the Adamses, I guess, or maybe even there's evidence of dynastic political life in this country before the Adamses, and it runs on to the present moment. Mm -hmm. Surely our current president is the son of a president, the grandson of an American senator, and uh, by golly, the wife of a former president threatens mm -hmm. to run for president next time around. We'll talk about matters of this sort with Adam Bellow. Directly, we return after this. Adam Bellow is our guest tonight. He is editor-at-large for Doubleday Books. You brought some major books uh, into fruition and into publication in your time. And might one reveal this? You don't mind if I reveal it? No. A number of them are very important contributions to what might properly be called the neoconservative view of contemporary American life. Well, I, I, uh, it's true. I, I worked at the uh, as an editor at the Free Press in the in the uh, late '80s and early '90s, which had that role in American publishing. That's right. It was a it was a serious intellectual uh, enterprise, um, and in those days, uh, conservatives, neoconservatives uh, in particular, were really not um, uh, allowed to to voice their opinions in public, and uh, so we we published. Uh, people like James Q. Wilson, for example, Charles Murray, um, and some of the younger people, Dinesh D'Souza. Um, my, one of my, my first bestseller was uh, Illiberal Education by D'Souza. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and these were books that uh, really uh, beat down the, uh, the opposition, the barriers to conservative thought in the mainstream press. You wrote an interesting article uh, in New York Magazine, I guess it was, mm -hmm. just before the Republican convention came to New York, in which you explained how you had ceased being a 
Zabar liberal. You have to explain what a Zabar or well, is it Zabar? It's Zabars. Zabars. Yes. Yeah. For New Yorkers yeah. know this. Um, uh, Zabars is a great uh, uh, institution on the Upper West Side. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a, a Jewish. Uh, 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 delicacy store. It's a meta delicatessen. That's right. It's become an yeah. enormous uh, enterprise. Yeah. Um, but in the old days, you used to go in there, and there were you know pickle barrels on the street, and uh, loaves of rye bread hanging from the ceiling, and uh, uh, guys behind the counter slicing fish, yelling at each other. Um, and it was a wonderful scene. Uh, now it's it's a huge industrial undertaking. And I I I, uh, I grew up on the Upper West Side, which, as most people know, is a bastion of uh, uh, 60s era liberalism, and in my in my youth, I grew up in the in the 60s. Um, I shared those those views. I campaigned for uh, uh, for uh, for uh, Mayor John V. Lindsay and Hubert Humphrey. Um, uh, marched against the war. Um, uh, hated Nixon. Uh, these were the these were the attitudes that everyone was expected to take, and no one uh, could be found to disagree with them. Um, and uh, during the uh, in subsequent years, um, particularly during the Reagan years, I um, I moved to the right, um, or rather um, I ceased to agree with uh, liberals on certain questions, and um, my experience, which I wrote about in this article, was that it was not okay to disagree, uh, and uh, the the uh, uh, the reaction uh, the sort of you know, uh, my experience of being treated like a uh, like an alien uh, in my in my native on my native ground was um, uh, very painful. And uh, nevertheless, um, uh, I, that's how I uh, continued to think. And uh, and I made my career as an editor uh, by publishing books against the grain of uh, what I considered to be uh, left liberalism. You know, it is interesting and rather curious. I wonder if I'm right in this observation. Um, you and your father, you knew your father, of course, but you didn't live with your father. Your father and your mother divorced uh, when you were still quite young, mm -hmm. and you were raised in New York under your mother's supervision, mm -hmm. with contact, obviously, on occasion with your father. I think your father went through a similar uh, change of mind with regard to the larger political social issues, didn't he? Well, of course, he, you know, yes, yeah, Saul started, um, started life as a communist, uh, Trotskyite. In the in the 30s, mm -hmm. uh, again, like everybody else, he knew, and um, uh, I think it was the it was the experience of uh, partly of the Holocaust and also of the Stalin dictatorship uh, that um, disenchanted him with uh, with the communist movement. And but he remained a liberal mm -hmm. of left orientation on through, say, the Vietnam War years and so on? Well, I think he took the 60s rather badly. Uh -huh. um, uh, his experience, uh, uh, by that time, he was you know, already you know, nearly 60 years old, mm -hmm. and he was, he was tr I think, treated rather, rather badly uh, on, uh, on a number of occasions when he spoke on college campuses. And, uh, and his, I think his feeling was that the uh, commitment to the, to the Western heritage and the classics uh, and to literature as a vocation was had been eclipsed by political passions, uh, and I that learned shows that it very him. clearly and strongly, and with great concern in his novel *Mr. Samler's Planet*. Yes, I, I think what I learned from from my father, among many other things, uh, was that um, uh, he, uh, in this country, 
uh, politics has come to uh, replace culture as the as the uh-huh. as the height of uh, you know uh, the highest aspiration, and he just wasn't prepared to buy into that. Let us come to the American political dynasties. Are the Adams the first family so distinguished? Well, they're the first um, uh, 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 political dynasty uh, of the revolutionary since post the revolution, mm-hmm. of course. Politics in the in the colonial era, uh, like uh, as 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 in England, uh, which I mean, after all, colonial America was just an extension of of British society, mm-hmm. was just like the just like uh, England, um, uh, a question of great families who uh, uh, who ruled um, their uh, their their neighborhoods. Um, the revolution was uh, in, in in some respects a protest against the nepotism. Of the um, the colonial governors, uh, who um, uh, who used their authority to uh, to benefit their families, as as everybody naturally did in those days, uh, people like John Adams uh, and Ben Franklin and George Washington were very annoyed that they were not uh, able to rise higher in colonial society because the the, t- the top positions were occupied by um, uh, by British. Uh, 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 Sort of, uh, you know, recipients of, of of patronage and their their relatives. Of course, the, the first father-son pair in the American presidency is John Adams and John Quincy Adams. That's right. Uh, the the latter doesn't follow the former directly, but about two or three presidencies later. Yes, um, that's that's correct. And um, and John Quincy is a wonderful example of um, of a of a uh, of a highly qualified person who who suffered his whole life. Yeah. Under uh, had an enormous chip on his shoulder because um, his father had been president, uh, and everybody thought that uh, that he was um, uh, that he was trying to establish a monarchy that he that he wanted to uh, uh, to follow his father by some kind of divine right. Uh, but the fact is that John Quincy was perhaps the the most superbly prepared and qualified uh, figure ever in American politics. I mean, he'd he'd started out as his father's secretary in uh, uh, in Paris and London. Um, he he had uh, many many years of experience in foreign service. He was a very he was a brilliant intellectual, uh, and um, uh, uh, he was the Secretary of State uh, uh, who drafted the Monroe Doctrine. It's interesting to follow the careers of the sons of John Quincy Adams and the grandsons. Well, you know these dynastic families um, are very uh, very often in ter- intense pressure cookers. Yeah. And uh, it's a shame, really. Uh, you know what happens is you get one person generally who, who succeeds, uh, and then two or three others who are crushed, uh, and uh, who feel they can't measure. But in up. that case, two of them became significant intellectuals. Well, the um, in the third generation, yeah, and fourth generation, uh, you had you know Henry Adams, um, uh, and Brooks Adams, and Brooks Adams, who were who were great intellectuals, yeah. and it was John Adams who had actually prophesied this when he said, you know. He had a wonderful statement. He said, Great you know, line. "That's right. Yeah. I, I study uh, war so that my sons can study uh, culture and the arts." Uh, and this is how. Uh, and this actually, this was this was true. If you get a uh, uh, in the second and third generations, uh, a much more aristocratic, high-minded attitude. We pause for an update on the evening's news, and we'll. I think we should come back to American political history in relation to nepotism. We're not done with that subject yet, though. In a while, we will be on to the phones. But first to the newsroom and Paula Cooper, and directly back to Adam Bellow, author of In Praise of Nepotism, A History of Family Enterprise from King David 
to George W. Bush. Uh, before we reach the Bushes, who else, what other families stand out? Well, I think the, the great standout family, of course, there, there were the Harrisons who had, uh, you know, uh, 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 two presidents, um, uh, but the great family is the Roosevelts. Um, and, uh, uh, and here I think you have a wonderful uh, illustration of many themes that, are, that, that run throughout the history of nepotism, and particularly in America. I mean, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, it's, it's not generally remembered. I mean, you know, Teddy and Franklin are considered to be really two of the greatest presidents in American history. Uh, it's understood that they were both very rich, and they were aristocrats. Uh, and it's vaguely remembered, but not very clearly, that, they, that, uh, that Franklin mm. owed his, uh, his success in politics to some extent to his association with his famous uncle, that is to say, to family influence or nepotism. Uh, it's actually not uh, very clearly remembered that Teddy himself got his start in politics uh, entirely on the basis of his father's reputation and his uncle's uh, political help. Who were they? Manipulation. Well, Teddy's, Teddy's father, uh, the first Theodore Roosevelt, was a deeply admired uh, patrician, New York patrician, who was a leader in the reform movement, um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the civil service in, uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the party of Lincoln uh, had become very corrupt, and, um, uh, and a group of uh, very wealthy uh, uh, New Yorkers uh, decided to, uh, to, run a, to, to push a reform movement. And Theodore Roosevelt was one of the leaders of this, along with Charles Henry Dana and a number of other very famous people. Um, uh, Horace Greeley was another. Um, uh, and he died. Um, prematurely, and uh, there was a tremendous outpouring of, of affection for him uh, in New York. And um, his son Teddy was then um, then at Harvard. Um, and when he graduated, he decided that he wanted to go into politics. Uh, now he had an uncle who was a uh, a, a big deal in um, uh, in uh, uh, Democratic Party politics in New York, and uh, he arranged for Teddy to run in the Silk Stocking District, which was the, the wealthy district uh, on the Upper East Side. And all of, all of his father's friends uh, you know, endorsed him and they gave him money. Um, and there was a wonderful editorial in one of the New York newspapers <coughs> that, um, uh, that said, uh, it's true that, uh, the that young Theodore Roosevelt is young and untried. He was 23 years old. He was running for state assembly in New York. Um, but the people of the city um, uh, can, uh, can be confident that given who his father was, uh, that um, uh, that he will uh, that he will do his best and be a credit to his credit to his family. This is a remarkable sentiment, not one that would mm -hmm. be expressed today, but it's absolutely true. And Teddy, like many other um, important figures, uh, for example, Winston Churchill, uh, who started in politics in the uh, in the uh, late 19th century, were strongly motivated by a desire to carry on for their fathers. Um, Churchill's first speech in, in uh, the House of Lords, for example, as a young man, uh, was on the theme of naval preparedness, which had been his father's great political cause. Mm -hmm. um, Teddy also took up the, the cause of reform in the New York State Assembly, which was his father's great cause. It's interesting that two of, Roosevelt had four or five sons, I think four sons and one daughter. Mm -hmm. Two of his sons did serve terms in Congress. One of them, James Roosevelt, the eldest, was on this program once, a long, long time ago. Oh, you're speaking of Franklin now, Franklin's sons. Yeah, Franklin's yeah, sons, yeah, not, not Theodore Roosevelt's yeah. sons, but Franklin Roosevelt's sons, of course. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a son who uh, 
became an, was an important military figure in World War II, as I remember. Well, actually, yes. Uh, all of Theodore's sons uh, took, you know, took their father's, uh, you know, uh, sort of militaristic machismo, you know, yeah. very seriously, and they all went into World War One. One of them was killed. Um, another one was uh, seriously wounded. Well, one went on to World War II as yeah. well. Actually, two of them served in World War II. And one of them was important at the CIA. Mm -hmm. Well, they they were truly uh, a credit to to their father. Yeah. Um, uh, must have been a very difficult thing, of course, to be Teddy Roosevelt's son. Uh, but they all struggled very heroically with that. But to be Franklin Roosevelt's son, I guess it was very difficult for most of them to be Franklin Roosevelt's son. A number of them kind of wasted their lives and uh, messed things up. One of them did serve one or two terms. That, I think that was Franklin Jr. James served some four or five terms as a congressman from California and was a good congressman mm -hmm. with some reputation in Congress, but no, none of them ever got beyond that level in American politics. Well, you know, here's the paradox. You know, the, in American politics, uh, it is very unusual for there to be uh, a dynasty at the national level. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a handful of families that have managed to produce more than one president. The Kennedys have not managed to do it. Is, don't you think it, to do a what if, uh, to do a counterfactual, that if Robert Kennedy had not been shot down, he might very well have ascended to the presidency? It's very likely that he would have. He would not have been, he probably not have been elected in 1968. Um, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't think historians feel that he mm -hmm. had, that he had the, the ability to win that election. But you're quite right that um, he had plenty of time to go on, uh, and and I think after the murder of of, of JFK, yeah. it was felt that the country owed the presidency to the Kennedy family. Um, uh, uh, but the the fact is that dyna dynasties, political dynasties, have been extremely common in this country, much much more prevalent than anybody seems to realize. And they just it's just that they're mostly at the local state and local level. Oh, to be sure. You know, many, many well, generations. Well, excellent case in point, of course, is right here in Chicago. I open tonight with a quotation from Richard J. Daley, mm -hmm. and his son seems to be the perpetual, if not the eternal, mayor of Chicago. Yes, uh, and, that, and that illustrates also the fact that it's that it's that there's that there is no party uh, differential. Uh, there are just as many Republicans as Democrats. In fact, there may be more Democrats. Uh, John Dingell, for example, mm -hmm. uh, is a third-generation congressman. Uh, there are, you know, uh, there are Rockefellers uh, who have been governors of three states. Um, the Longs of uh, Louisiana mm -hmm. uh, were a very powerful, influential family for many years. What about the Clintons of Little Rock? Well, the Clintons are a special case. Or the Clintons <coughs> uh, now of New York. Yes. Well, you know, here we have a um, uh, a slightly different phenomenon. You know, it's very interesting the 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 uh, the way in which women have um, benefited from nepotism. Typically, the way women have uh, gotten into politics is that, that they've succeeded their husbands mm -hmm. uh, in office. Usually after a death. Yes. Gene yeah. um, uh, Carnahan, for example, mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, I believe Helen Gahagan Douglas also. A number of, a number of women, um, uh, Sonny Bono's widow, um, for example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for some reason, it's considered appropriate. I, I don't know why, um, but it, it's often considered appropriate. For a for uh, for a widow to carry on for her husband, mm -hmm. what is unusual, uh, and we see it we see it in Hillary's case, is for is for a spouse, a political spouse, uh, to go out on her own right and run for office, uh, and this I think is um, a generational difference. I mean, Hillary is a mm -hmm. is a post 60s feminist, and uh, widowhood may be one of the preconditions. Is possibly having been betrayed by the husband, 
through a sexual liaison with a younger woman and thus having been publicly humiliated and publicly injured, might that be another sympathy getter? Well, I, I, I hesitate to speculate on that. Um, uh, well, I think what is clear is that Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, operated as a unit, um, as a kind of symbiotic mm -hmm. uh, couple, from a very early uh, time in their lives together. And it is not clear that they had a, any kind of a bargain or deal, but it seems to have been, I, I think, it's, it's hard to discount the, the possibility that um, uh, that that Bill's support for her political career um, is is a kind of quid pro quo. Um, but maybe the public's response to her and the public's affection or enthusiasm for her is partly also based upon a, upon a sort of a sympathy vote. Well, I think it's I think that's true. Um, I mean, Hillary's a complex figure, and uh, uh, I think she's she's very polarizing. Um, uh, uh, for one thing, it's hard to tell what, who, who she really is and what she really believes, um, uh, because she seems to be very, very polished and yeah. you know, slick. And in a polished way, she's moving towards the right at the moment. Yeah, she's she is um, uh, she, she's very careful. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, I think it's true. I think you're right that there's some sympathy for her, uh, uh, and I think that's one reason why we don't hear so much. Negativity. Um, we don't. You know, she's not. She's not attacked so much as uh, as a uh, product of nepotism. Even though that's that's mm. clearly what she is. Some of the world passes through uh, this studio. Um, one woman who was on this program a number of years ago was the wife of a former president, mm -hmm. and she was full of enthusiasm for her two sons, both of whom were recently elected governors. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear that Barbara Bush had plans for them, mm -hmm. or that she and her husband were not done with politics. Well, I think it's very, uh, it was very amusing and not at all surprising that, uh, that Laura Bush, in her recent uh, stand-up comedy mm -hmm. routine, uh, uh, remarked that, uh, that her mother-in-law was, uh, was just like Don Corleone. Uh, uh -huh. This is... Uh, this is a, a, a rare moment of candor from a member mm -hmm. of the Bush family, but it's something that, that, that is clearly true. The Bush family, although in a kind of waspy way, uh, very restrained, not to say repressed kind of way, um, operates just like a mafia family. Uh, of course, they don't use the same methods, uh, let's assume. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They don't, they don't use murder and extortion, and uh, uh, they don't break your knuckles, but um, they have other ways. Uh, uh, and it's very, they're very much a family-based enterprise. Everyone in the family is involved uh, in campaigning and fundraising, uh, and they have this, the ethic that um, the dynastic families share of being intensely private, um, of having a very strong uh, sense of the, of the difference between those who are inside and those who are outside. Uh, nevertheless, they, they also know how to reach out from the center of the family to attach other people to them, through patronage and various kinds of instruments. Would you persist friendship. in your argument that basically nepotism is good for us in that particular instance? My view of nepotism is that it is neither good nor bad. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think it is foolish to, uh, to take a position on it. You, you may as well uh, 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 argue about whether the, whether the cycles, the phases of the moon are good or is bad. Is it good or bad? It's simply there. It's there. It yeah. is. And it's connected to, it's, it's part of our deepest biological nature. Um, not, only, uh, not only do we entirely depend upon the nepotism of our mother and father 
uh, to survive uh, infancy and childhood. Um, but society as a whole uh, is based on the transmission of knowledge, property, values, authority um, from one generation to the next. And that occurs through the natural care and concern of parents for children. So we cannot do without nepotism. The question that I raise in my book is how can we make it, uh, how, how can we distinguish good nepotism from bad? Let us put that question to our listeners. What is good nepotism? What is bad? Do you have instances of either or both? Uh, tales of nepotism from American politics, from American business, from American cultural life, uh, local, national, whatever. We are interested in your contributions and, of course, in your questions. And we're opening the phone lines right now so that you can get in there. The number as ever is 591-7200, 591-7200. If you're listening to us in Paris at the moment or in Kuala Lumpur at the moment over the Internet, if you want to tell, tell us about nepotism in French political or social life or in Malaysian political and social life, uh, do by all means join us. But the best way to do that would be via email, the email address extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com or 591-7200. All uh, who've got any interest in nepotistic practice, whether as observers or as participants, we're ready for your contributions. Uh, get those calls and emails in quickly and we shall return right after this. And it's time to go to the phones and to get tales of nepotism from out in the larger world. Or any questions you want to raise as well for Adam Bellow, the author of the book that we're drawing from tonight, which is titled, In Praise of Nepotism, A History of Family Enterprise from King David to George W. Bush. That is, by the way, just republished in paperback by Anchor Books. Our phone number, 591-7200. Uh, at the moment, uh, one or two lines are available. All of them were taken a few moments ago, but... Our producer uh, does not let everybody through. You have to have an interesting question or a comment, as you undoubtedly have, who tried to reach us before and hit the busy signal. So try again quickly, 2591-7200, and somebody will get through. You are the first on the air. Good evening. Hi, good evening, Milt. Yes, sir. Um, I'm involved with the uh, Building Trades Union here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, for... Years and years and years, if you were the son, daughter, uh, uncle, or cousin of someone in the union, you had some sort of at least an ear in the union for getting in, in into that union. Uh, the U.S. Department of Labor has come has come in and uh, kind of taken that away from us. And, you know, for a while, everyone thought that was a bad thing, that there was nepotism going on. But, you know, that person, that kid, that... that uh, cousin or daughter or, or niece they really wanted to be in that union and you know what I, I just think it's wrong that the Department of Labor says that we can't interview our apprentices anymore and that was at that time it was it was time for uh, that candidate who was applying for the union to say I've got an uncle or or a cousin that is in the trades and they think that's the best thing going and you know, we lost it, and I think that's really going to hurt us. Well, see, this is this is why I love Chicago, because people still have a common sense outlook here. The caller is perfectly right, um, and uh, in fact, I devote some space in my book to the to the labor movement, 
Um, it's very interesting that uh, the early labor movement <clears throat> uh, was uh, was thoroughly nepotistic, and the whole idea was uh, to not only to help your to band together with your with your ethnic um, uh, uh, brethren uh, to form trade associations, but to make sure that your sons and and uh, nephews had an opportunity uh, to uh, to join the union afterwards. And in fact. Um, in uh, most of the uh, uh, most of the trade unions founded in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, particularly in the building trades, uh, which are still referred to as father-son trades, um, the charters of these unions explicitly spelled out that the sons and uh, and nephews and blood relatives of union members had first shot. It's a tradition that goes back to the medieval guilds, does it not? Well, of that's perfectly right. In the in in medieval cities, uh, you had uh, people who practiced a particular trade tended to live in a particular neighborhood and there was a street where you'd go for the you know the leather makers and the barrel makers and the goldsmiths and the silversmiths and these families lived in the same street and practiced the same trade and, and eventually of course they they intermarried with one another and they formed guild associations to uh, to protect their uh, their trade and um, after a while the only way you could get into these to these professions was to to apprentice to one of these Masters and very often, you know, marry his marry his daughter, um, and uh, this is how this is how things have. This is how, first of all, this is how skills and abilities have always been passed down. It's a very interesting legal case, um, brought all the way to the Supreme Court in um, I think the 1930s, um, uh, uh, of a, um, uh, a tugboat union uh, down in New Orleans. Uh, they were uh, sued for discrimination uh, because there were too many. Uh, members who were who were sons of uh, of tugboat captains, and the Supreme Court decided that um, uh, that it was a good, it was necessary, uh, in fact, because mm -hmm. uh, to have these these young uh, family members uh, in the union, because uh, you had to have intimate knowledge of the river uh, and uh, where the shallows were, where the currents were, uh, and this is a knowledge that you only gained from spending years on the river in the company of your of your father and uncles. Uh, so there, there's a very clear case to be made um, that uh, uh, st it's still the case that that certain skills and forms of knowledge can only be passed on uh, from families. Our thanks to the caller. Let's go quickly to another. 591-7200 is the number, and you are next on the air. Good evening. Good evening. I'll uh, make it quick and just await your answer. Your show is fascinating as always. Do you find that leadership skills decline with each successive generation? Yeah, it's a very good question. That's a very good question. There is um, uh, a very uh, clearly uh, observable pattern in dynastic families, and it has, again, you know, it's, it's been expressed in very common sense forms. Um, the uh, the famous uh, adage, uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, really sums this up. Um, what I noticed is that in, in many dynastic families, you have a pattern. Um, you have a, uh, a founding father, a kind of Joseph Kennedy type or, or um, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte type, who's very uh, uh, hard, uh, very driven, uh, but also very talented um, and um, uh, often very overbearing, who is you know, a self-made man, but who, who insists that his sons uh, should do everything that he says they should do. Uh, in the second generation, you very often have uh, earnest, uh, also talented, very able young young uh, heirs who who try very hard to please their father. 
and are often uh, very talented in their own right. Um, so um, uh, the uh, the sons of Joseph Kennedy, uh, you know, JFK and uh, and RFK particularly, were clearly extremely able, talented people uh, who would have been uh, eligible for elected office even if their father weren't uh, a multimillionaire. But in the third generation, what very often happens is you have people who are born to wealth and privilege, uh, and they don't really often have that sense of um, uh, uh, you know contact with the uh, with the gutter in effect you know the the knowledge of the street the understanding of how power is is made uh, and these people have um, often uh, they 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 are uh, what you describe what I would describe as prodigals people who are not very serious. Um, uh, and they also have a lot of a big psychological burden very often because they, they don't really know who they are. It's very difficult for them to decide uh, whether to follow the family business or, or to go off, go their own way. And so very often you have you do have a decline. Uh, but you can't count, I find you can't count these people out either because sometimes they'll surprise you. Um, uh, and also it has to be said that uh, it, when it comes to particularly political leadership, you know there is, there is there there are studies that show that um, that that people who follow their fathers in politics are actually more responsive to their constituents. So I think um, that what I think is that they develop a kind of um, uh, high-minded sense of vocation uh, that, um, uh, that you might almost call aristocratic. Um, goes with a certain privilege, but um, I think the answer is that uh, they tend to be quite, quite good at their jobs. On to another caller. Good evening. You are on the air. Good evening. A very extremely thought-provoking uh, discussion tonight. Thank you, guys. My question is, uh, uh, regarding Hillary Clinton, clearly her uh, being elected to the senatorship is is a clear case of nepotism. As far as her run for the presidency, which everyone pretty much is positive she's going to do, would you consider that more of nepotism or a sympathy vote, or do you think it actually work against her because some people would react to say, she is clearly riding on her husband's coattails. Why should I vote for her? That's I think I was suggesting earlier that there may be a sympathy vote, not as the total explanation of her success, but that's one of the components. Well, you know, Hillary's a very complicated and divisive and polarizing figure. I think the answer to your question is yes to 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 everything. All of the above. All of the above. Uh, I think the problem, you know, Hillary's not really perceived as as a as a nepotist, although she 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 by I think she fits my definition. She's really her the perception is that she's a the the, the word used for her is carpetbagger. Um, because she's not a native New Yorker and uh, comes from Illinois by way of Arkansas. Um, uh, but because there is this tradition of wives following their husbands, uh, usually when they die, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, there's a kind of, um, uh, it's considered acceptable for, for the wife to, to follow, the, follow her husband. I think, I think Hillary gets a break, and also because she's a, um, she's a pioneering feminist, and uh, I, think, I think a lot of women... Uh, particularly, you know, uh, New York Democrat women uh, feel that she's the standard bearer for their whole generation. All right, thanks to that caller. I want to read you um, something on the email here. And here it is. <clears throat> this is from a listener, I guess, in Western Illinois. He says, in my state Senate district in Western Illinois, our Senator Denny Jacobs resigned in midterm and had the local Democratic County chairman appoint his son, Mike, to fill the rest of his term. Mike has never held any political office. Denny admits he planned this 
so his son will have the advantage of incumbency when he faces the next election campaign. Since the politicians drew the district boundaries after the last census to ensure that only one party, Democrat or Republican, can win election in each district, Mike Jacobs is a shoe-in to keep his... One feels no purpose to cast a vote in this race. Determine. Uh, we've had a recent similar instance right here in the Chicago area. Uh, Bill Lipinski, who's a member of the U.S. Congress, decided not to run again, and he maneuvered the Democratic nomination for his son, who is now a congressman. Mm -hmm. The son had, was, in fact, a professor of some kind, I believe, or at least a trained academic with no political uh, prior experience. Well, this is, a, this is a fascinating question. Of course, you know, inheritance of office is, is illegal, but it was, it was the rule in early American history. There were uh, generations of, of representatives, particularly at the local level, state level, mm. um, who simply inherited their, their seats. Uh, usually it's not, it's not done quite so nakedly, um, but um, uh, uh, if you can get elected, um, nobody seems to mind, even though you're someone like John Dingell, for example, in, in, uh, in Detroit, um, clearly has a lock on his district. No one is going to unseat him. Um, he didn't really need anybody to redraw the district. Um, the family just owns it. Uh, and this is this is just how it is. Now it's it's true that there are that there are fathers who will um, overreach. Um, and uh, a good example, for example, uh, recently uh, last year was the um, uh, was the Senate uh, Alaska Senate um, uh, incident where uh, the uh, the outgoing senator, the governor of uh, of Alaska, appointed his daughter to be uh, to be senator Lisa Murkowski, and everybody said she would lose the um, the election. Uh, because of the nepotism issue, and the National Republican Party backed away from her because of this, and yet she won the election. And my point, uh, I guess, my conclusion about this is, well, we have we have a democratic process, just as in business we have a we have a, a free market, um, and if people don't uh, if people don't think you're doing a good job uh, as a as a congressman or senator, they they have the they have the freedom to vote you out, uh, and. Um, and even very powerful democratic mm -hmm. dynasties or uh, political dynasties like the Kennedy family will lose elections. Here's a curious one, also of local reference, um, namely um, Congressman Jesse Jackson, Jr. Mm -hmm. His father was not a member of Congress, but his father is a major figure, of course, all the same in um, African-American politics and African-American cultural life. And if he wasn't named Jesse Jackson, Jr., he would not have got elected to Congress. And my point about that would be that somebody like Jesse Jackson Jr. <clears throat> By the way, um, he's now rumored to be considering a run for the mayor for the mayoralty of Chicago. Well, that'll be exciting. I'll yeah. I'll watch that one closely. Yeah. But what I what I notice about people who um, who benefit from nepotism, particularly in this generation, it wasn't always the case, of course, but in this generation, people who benefit from nepotism uh, feel that they have to. Uh, work very, very hard um, to, in effect, to earn their advantages after the fact. Uh, nobody wants to be accused of practicing nepotism, but it's even worse to be accused of being the beneficiary of nepotism. Uh, and so these, these young people uh, typically um, uh, work twice as hard uh, as anybody else. And, uh, I wonder if along those lines you would agree with this characterization. Let me read another email. Those who are expecting a repeat of George H.W. must be disappointed since the son is nothing like the father. George H.W. had a tremendous resume but lacked 
the energy and ability to inspire and lead. I imagine Margaret Thatcher found Reagan's successor very frustrating and prone to, quote, going wobbly when, th when things got tough. George W. has tremendous energy and stubbornness regarding things he considers important. He also has the ability to, quote, connect with people on an emotional level, an ability that his father did not have. He seems to identify much more with Reagan than with his own father. Well, I think the, the secret to George W.'s success is that he takes after his mother rather uh -huh. than his father. Uh, there's also a strain of uh, Walker blood. You know, the Bush family is very interesting because it, it illustrates one of the uh, one of the patterns of dynastic families, which is that there's a um, there's a maternal side mm -hmm. to the family that is often submerged. It's in the background. Uh, Behind every great dynasty is a woman. That's right. And the Walkers, um, who are very important in the Bush in the Bush dynasty, are are background figures. They don't run for office, but they did contribute a tremendous amount of money and influence. They were Wall Street types, uh, and also a sort of character profile. They were very uh, hard driving, energetic. Um, uh, gamblers and uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, adventurers, and I think uh, George W. takes after his his Walker ancestors. We're overdue for some commercials. Uh, here they come, and then we'll be directly back to the phones on five nine one seven two double zero. The number remains five nine one seven two double zero for conversation with Adam Bello, author of In Praise of Nepotism: A Natural History. Uh, I want to testify. As I perhaps suggested earlier, it is a wonderfully readable book, and it's full of uh, great historical material as well as some interesting theoretical material and just lots of good gossip, what about call it. Well, thank you, Milt. Uh, and that book is published by Random House, just recently available now in, uh, in paperback under the imprint of Anchor Books. 591-7200 is our number. You are next on the air. Good evening. Yes, I have a couple of interesting... Uh nepotisms in the John Adams administration. One was already mentioned, but John Quincy Adams was recommended to his own father by George Washington, who said he is our most important public personage. And then, uh, so how could Adams refuse? Then later, uh, uh, John Adams employed his son's father-in-law, Joshua Johnson, as commissioner of stamps. Well, Johnson had been the American consul in London for many years. In fact, the courtship of his son took place in their home in London, and uh, they had actually met 18 years before in France, which both Jack Shepard and David McCullough left out of their histories of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams was 11, and <clears throat> Louisa Adams was 4. And they were waiting for a, a ship back to America. I think they went to enlist the aid of the French in the American <clears throat> American Revolution. And there's a letter to this effect stating that that's how they met. John Adams wrote a letter in 1797 when they married stating that they had met in 1779 as children. And one of the most interesting people was uh, the uncle of Louisa Adams, a founding father who was never mentioned, only known to the people of Maryland, and it's only because of Thomas Johnson that we have 50 states instead of 13 because Maryland held out till the end before signing the Constitution that uh, all Western territories would revert to the United States, and subsequently uh, new states were formed instead of saying having Virginia extending to the Pacific. So 
I thought those were. That's fascinating, and you're absolutely right. You, you, if you if you pick up my book and read the the Adams section, you'll you'll find a, a great deal of detail on on these on these subjects. Adams, um, uh, the the story about Adams in Washington is very is actually mm -hmm. very funny because, you know, Adams, John Adams had tremendous family pride. Um, uh, and uh, he really believed that his family was destined to uh, to rule this country for generations, um, uh, not through any hereditary right, but, but because they were so brilliant um, and such wonderful public servants. Um, but he was so proud um, that he could not bring himself to advance his son directly. Now, George Washington, uh, although he was childless himself, um, uh, was um, uh, was an uncle to dozens of <clears throat> of young men, and loved to uh, to to have proteges and take up young men and advance them. Um, and John Quincy Adams was one of these young men. And uh, the letter that he <clears throat> wrote to uh, uh, to John Adams when he was president was really, I felt, kind of elaborate. Um, Charade. It was a kind of it was a little. It was a kind of little minuet that they did, so that John Adams could feel that um, it was okay for him to do what he wanted to do anyway, which is to advance his son to give his son John Quincy a, a diplomatic appointment. It was a wonderful little uh, detail of American history. I see. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir, for a very interesting contribution, indeed. And we will pause for a last round of commercials, and then directly back to Adam Bellow and to your phone calls on 5917200 or your emails at extension720 at tribune.com. As we go back to your calls to Adam Bellow, good evening. Good evening. Is it, a, I guess, almost a mistake for a father to give his son his own name and a junior? Is it even tougher for the son to live up since he has an even harder time establishing his own identity and name? Now, what an interesting question. Do we have any juniors in American political hierarchies? Well, of course, there's Jesse Jackson Jr. There's Harold Harold yeah. Ford Jr., a, a, ten, a Democratic ten, congressman from Tennessee. Um, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, it, the 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 habit of of passing names down through a family is very very old, um, and um, uh, is very much a characteristic of of uh, traditional societies: China, Greece, ancient Rome, um, and in um, uh, in the 19th century. Um, uh, uh, people wanted to uh, uh, call attention to the longevity of their family, um, uh, pass these names down so that you had, you know, uh, people with thirds and fourths. And in fact, you know, New England families uh, intermarried so much that, you know, you have these odd New England names where people have, you know, two last names. Um, and uh, that's that's because they have a, a maternal family. Mm -hmm. So someone's named Huntington Shields or something like that. You think that's an odd name? Well, it's 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 the it's the other branch of their family. Uh, that they've passed down, you know. I think the caller is is correct that in in our day, it's it's um, maybe a little bit of a burden. Um, of course, 100 years ago, it was a source of pride, uh, but family pride, um, uh, which we still feel uh, very often, um, has has gone out of fashion. Um, and so I think you know, uh, I do not have a son, but if I if I had one, I would not have named him after myself or you know, my father, even though that's the Jewish tradition, is to name your son after your grand, after your father. Uh, Only if deceased. If deceased, right. correct. Back to the phones, 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. 
Yes, good evening. Um, thank you for taking my call. I was wondering how um, Mr. Bellows um, reconciled the idea that uh, nepotism was a good thing in politics when it's my understanding that the founding fathers, when they were looking at the uh, structure of the executive branch, looked at monarchy and decided against it. And they also ruled against the idea of um, the European tradition where the firstborn son would um, inherit whole, you know, the whole lot of uh, land and, and titles and um, rejected that kind of nepotism. How did, how did um, uh, Mr. Bellow react to that? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, the, in fact, it was, it was Thomas Jefferson who, uh, who made sure that, uh, that the, the, the British practice of primogeniture was eliminated uh, because he wanted to make sure that the great landed estates were broken up um, and that wealth was dispersed and that more people had more opportunity. Um, uh, so yes, we do not want nepotism institutionalized in our political system. We want everything to be decided by uh, the electoral process. Um, however, uh, that doesn't mean that the founders didn't believe in helping their relatives. Um, uh, and if, if you care to, to read my chapter uh, on, on the, the nepotism of the founders, you'll find uh, that all of them were, were quite hypocritical um, uh, on this question, including Jefferson. Uh, we know about Adams, of course, but uh, you know Washington and Franklin. Fran ben Franklin was the greatest nepotist of uh, of the 18th century. Uh, he completely controlled the um, as postmaster general all of the uh, all the postmasterships uh, up and down the eastern seaboard, and he filled them with his relatives and moved them around constantly. He was, um, and this was the great this was the uh, the great <laughs> you know paragon of uh, of uh, of uh, Republican virtue. Um, so, I mean, my point would be simply that there's really no necessary contradiction. Um, as long as we have a healthy democracy, uh, if people choose to return to office, the, the sons and grandsons and, and daughters and wives of, of people who have been in office before, well, that's their choice. And uh, if they don't perform well, then they can be voted out of office. And if you don't like it, um, start your own dynasty. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't see any... Um concentration of power in that way. What I see in history is a rise and fall of elites. Um, it, is a it is a cyclical process. Nothing can be done mm -hmm. to stop it. Um, but they tend to decay of their own weight. Mm -hmm. um, it only takes a couple generations. Remember what I said before, there is a, there is a pattern of decline, um, abilities, uh, do decline. I mean, you know, talents and abilities are passed down through families, but they do tend to decline. Not every generation is equally talented. And after a period of time, um, all the great elites of the past have disappeared. After all, where are the Boston Brahmins today? Um, they are no more. The, the English aristocracy is gone. The Roman aristocracy is gone. Um, these, and yet these elites, mm -hmm. which in their time were very exclusive, um, left us great legacies, mm -hmm. which, we, which we still value today. Mm -hmm. Ma'am, thank, well, thank you, for you the very call. much. Have you ever read Vilfredo Pareto? Uh, yes, actually, uh, Pareto was recommended to me by my my friend Robert Kaplan, who yeah. um, on the circulation uh, of elites. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah my book is really a um, an, uh, a uh, from one from one perspective um, a history of elites and of the use of nepotism mm -hmm. uh, by elites. Elites rise through some kind of ability. Um, or talent, whether it's commercial or military, or you know, in the case of the Bach family, musical, um, they use nepotism to preserve uh, their gains, uh, to keep other people, you know, from gaining access to their. But you're suggesting that they that somehow 
talent, ability, energy poops out. Uh, uh, gradually, eventually it does. And I also have to say that, you know, that in this, we have a healthy um, uh, bias in this country against um, uh, elites and elitism. Um, and uh, there's a great deal of, as I've discovered from, from being out here uh, talking to people, there's a tremendous amount of resentment and, and uh, dislike of nepotism. Um, uh, I think it's largely based on envy, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and eventually there is a backlash uh, when people overreach, as they always do. I mean, the thing about nepotism is that it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no restraining it. Um, people will always go as far as they can. No uh, one, the, the patriarch never says, now we're going to lie low for a generation. No, they always, they always go as far as they can. Uh, uh, and, and, and when they overreach, um, mm. it becomes a scandal. Yeah. Uh, and there's a backlash. As, and I think that's a healthy thing. I don't see any What are some such it. scandals in recent memory? Um, well, a, a, a terrific example was the Suharto family of Indonesia. In Indonesia. Yeah. Now, um, people in South Asia know very well um, that nepotism is a problem. And yet, of course, in that part of the world, family, uh, you know, families are very, very close. Um, there's no, you know, it is, it is considered the primary obligation uh, of every person to, to look out for their, for their relatives first and foremost. But in the Suharto case, there was vast... Uh, uh, yeah, the, here you have a family. That's that, corruption. You have a Financial family that corruption. got to the, got to the top, and the 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 the, the children um, uh, uh, gained control of state-owned businesses. Yeah. They they settled. They sold influence. They they amassed a, a fortune of billions of dollars, and it finally it just got out of hand and became a, a global scandal. Uh, and uh, they were as as properly they should have been driven out of office and their mm -hmm. money confiscated. Back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, Milk. A wonderful program. I was wondering why an Eisenhower dynasty never got started. The son, John, worked for the president in the White House and uh, later was an ambassador. And then his son, David, married Julie Nixon. But nothing uh, has seemed to uh, uh, develop from there. wonder why. Well, I didn't study the Eisenhower family, um, but you're right. Um, uh, the, the, the sons did show signs of having some dynastic ambition. You know, marrying into the, to the Nixon family is a sign of some, some ambition. Um, uh, maybe the fall of Nixon, the discrediting of Nixon, uh, brought the, the, the David's ambitions uh, low. It's, it's, um, uh, it's a possibility. John, the son, had a long and distinguished military career and also did a fair amount of writing rather good historic, military historical writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, David is in a foreign affairs think tank in Philadelphia at this moment, where he, I guess he's the director of a particular of foreign affairs think tank in Philadelphia. I th yes, I think, you know, the Eisenhower um, family would, would have had to um, uh, uh, continue the military tradition. I think it's, I'd, I'd, it's likelier that they would have continued the military line. Um, uh, we've had many great military families in this in this country. Well, you know, curiously on the Eisenhower, did, do, you, do you remember this? Somebody said of them, somebody who knew the family from way back said, I would have bet that if an Eisenhower was going to be president, it would be Milton rather than Dwight. <laughs> Milton Eisenhower was a rather distinguished academic mm -hmm. who was the president of, uh, ultimately, of Johns Hopkins University, as I remember. Actually, I didn't know that. I learned something every Earlier day. president of... Um, uh, some university out in Kansas, their home state. But I think he ended as president of Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very they're a very distinguished family then in their own right. Have there you talked a... about the Adley Stevenson family? There was a young uh -huh. Stevenson on TV news here, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we have not heard from them. 
That's right, a great Illinois political family, many generations of, of uh, elected and uh, appointed officials. A grandfather of Adlai Stevenson was vice president of the United States, mm -hmm. I believe. I believe so, yes. And he, of course, was governor and aspired and kept aspiring to mm -hmm. the presidency. Well, it, again, it just, you know, it shows that the, the prevalence of, um, of political families uh, in, in local politics, I mean, this is something that people really like. It, it's, mm. it's, it's, it, the thing that has to be explained is not why nepotism uh, is committed, but why, why other people collude in it. Uh, you know, you couldn't have nepotism, you couldn't have political families um, or uh, families of traditions in any, in any field if the general public weren't basically okay with it. All right, thanks to the caller. You'll have, forgive me and I trust indulge me if I turn back to your family and to the sons of your father. He had three sons of which you are one. Um, none of them are pursuing his kind of career. You're the closest. Well, I'm in the publishing business. Um, uh, uh, and as a writer, um, I, I, I'm, an, I'm a nonfiction writer. Yeah. Um, it's true that I spent um, a few years in my 20s writing, uh, writing short stories, um, but I wasn't able to uh, convince myself that the world really needed uh, another uh, uh, novelist named Bellow. And um, uh, I, um, uh, I went into publishing, which uh, I found was much more congenial to my abilities um, uh, and uh, uh, was a good use of my, uh, of my training and education uh, in uh, uh, in, in literature and uh, and history. Only a minute left. What? Let's say something about your other two brothers. Well, my um, my older brother is a um, uh, is a psychologist uh, and a family therapist living in California, um, who uh, t follows his mother's profession. Uh, who was also a psychiatric social worker, um, and my younger brother is a uh, reporter, uh, an editorial writer. Um, has worked in a number of newspapers all over the country. He's now at the Berkshire Eagle, uh, where he writes editorials, um, and uh, grew up in partly in Chicago and partly in New York. Um, and he has um, uh, he has a certain um, uh, uh, element of of his father's uh, sort of I think a sort of street sensibility, his mm -hmm. ear for the for the for common speech and uh, really? yeah, his love of uh, of uh, you know uh, uh, police reporting. We have come to the end of the available time. Our guest has been Adam Bellow, and we've been drawing from his excellent book, In Praise of Nepotism, A History of Family Enterprise from King David to George W. Bush. That's republished in paperback by Anchor Books.